Hello, and welcome to Holly History, where we discuss what you want to hear. Bringing you the story and answering your questions. No fake news, no alternative facts. Just history, all the time. Hello and welcome to Holly History. Mr. D back here again today for our second part of a three-part series of shorts on the Cold War. Um, hoping you're using this in our distance learning to kind of take you through some important stuff uh, through the Cold War and to you know better understand the notes and, and use it as a material to help you in your instruction. Also, this can be used for you know review for eleventh uh, grade or eighth grade for our final exam. You know, use it for as you see fit. But today we hope you enjoy our second episode on the Cold War. So we left off talking about McCarthyism and American fear and uh, this international battle of ideas between the United States and the Soviet Union that's known as the Cold War decades long. Uh, Starts at the end of World War II, 1945, into the 1950s, and that's really the decade we're dealing with today, the 1950s. And we're going to pick it up with the Korean War. Now, I have a little bit of personal connection to this because my grandfather served in Korea, as many maybe of you, uh, many of your grandparents have as well. So it's a very, very important time period, one near and dear to my heart. So the Korean War is significant because, again, we have that U.S. policy of containment, right? And we're willing to fight communism around the world and kind of do whatever it takes, Harry Truman's policy, and he'll be the president for much of the Korean War. Um, Korea was a Japanese colony during World War II. It was a territory that was taken over, and it became independent following the war and was split at the 38th parallel. Uh, North Korea was a communist government that was going to be supported by the Soviet Union, and South Korea was a democratic capitalist government supported by the United States. In 1950, North Korean forces, which are supplied by the Soviet Union, will enter South Korea, and this violates the Truman Doctrine. What you have here is communism spreading to another country, right? We want to win that. We, we want to win the international war of ideas. We want to make sure that there's uh, more countries become capitalist dem- uh, democracies or republics. Representative governments we want fewer countries that are, uh, you know, communist or socialist. So the United Nations, but it'll be mostly U.S. troops, will send forces to push the North Koreans back behind the 38th parallel. And commanding them, this will be controversial, is Douglas MacArthur, very, very famous general, commander of the uh, Allied Force in the Pacific during World War II, uh, very famous general from World War One, the guy that broke up the Bonus Army. He's pretty famous. Uh, him and his trademark corncob pipe there. You can actually see in the notes if you're uh, eighth grade Holly student working through this. So uh, MacArthur plans a pretty genius, ingenious landing at uh, Incheon, and they push the troops back pretty far uh, within Korea. And the problem is, though, there's a country that borders Korea that is also communist, and that is China. Now, this gets confusing. Now, in the late 1940s, China goes from being kind of a, I don't want to say capitalist, democratic you know, nation, but China goes from being a friend of the U.S. in the late 1940s to becoming a communist nation in the early uh, late 1940s and early 1950s, uh, led by a guy by the name of Mao Zedong. You'll learn a lot about him in Global, uh, very, very influential communist leader. Now, China is in a weird spot because they're not exactly super, super buddies with the Soviet Union, but they are communists and definitely not seen as super friendly to the United States. 
So that'll always be interesting how China and Russia kind of, or excuse me, the Soviet Union kind of play off each other. So China doesn't like this. China immediately sends forces to push the UN or US forces, because uh, the UN forces have US troops, British troops, all kinds. They immediately, it's kind of the seesaw war, as you can see in a map if you look at the phases of the war. So we've got, you know, the North Koreans push the South Koreans back in the first phase. Then the U.S. U.N. troops get involved, push the North Koreans back into almost China. Then the Chinese get involved. They push the U.N. U.S. forces back behind the 38th parallel. And in the final phase, you have the U.N. U.S. forces rebound and push the Chinese back behind the 38th parallel again. So it's this seesaw kind of stalemate. I would probably say the U.S. U.N. forces have a little bit of the upper hand by 1951. But MacArthur wants to escalate this war. He wants to bomb China. He wants to go after uh, Chinese troops more. And Harry Truman has just got his head in his hands at this point. He is absolutely stressed. He does not want this to uh, launch into World War III. The Soviet Union seriously considered, um, you know, Stalin will ask his military advisors, can we fight the U.S. right now? And his advisors will tell him, no, we're not strong enough yet. We're still trying to recover from World War II. And so, you know, the, the Soviet Union will supply the Chinese and the North Koreans, but they will not uh, get involved. They go through, you'll see both countries do this throughout the Cold War. Um, Soviet planes will be flown by Soviet pilots to help out in training South Koreans, but the pilots are ordered to shoot themselves, commit suicide if the before being turned over to the U.S. Nobody wants the Soviets and the U.S. to fight, especially leaders of both countries. They're both really trying to kind of avoid this World War III, especially Harry Truman. And when MacArthur wants to escalate this war, Truman's like, no. And we're going to see this battle happen a lot among uh, U.S. military leaders and presidents where the U.S. military leaders want to escalate things, ramp them up, and the civilian leaders like the president are like, no, we need to cool things off. We know what a World War III will look like. We both have nuclear weapons. And MacArthur even mentions using nuclear weapons, I believe, at one point. I'm not 100% certain on that, but I'm pretty sure he did. Um, but anyways, he wants to escalate the war. Truman does not want him uh, to do that, and he ends up firing MacArthur. And at this point, they're kind of looking for, uh, Truman's looking for a way out of this war. He just wanted to contain the spread of communism. He not necessarily wants to go into the Soviet Union and end it. He wants to contain the spread. And if we could just get North and South Korea back to the way they were before, split at the 38th parallel, we could all go home and get this thing over with. Now, the United States uh, citizenry is kind of, you know, it, it, there's support for the war, but it's not quite like World War II. You're going to see the Cold War wars like Vietnam and Korea are different for that. Um, the U.S. support is not nearly as high as it was during World War II. So, again, we have got the communist North Koreans supported by the Soviet Union and the Chinese and the South Koreans supported by the United States and the West and NATO. Eisenhower, Dwight D. Eisenhower, leader of Allied Forces in Europe, is running for president in 1952, and he wins the election as a Republican, um, kind of as one of these guys saying, look, I'm a general, I'm a good guy to lead the country this time, I can negotiate a peace to this war, and he will win the election, and he does. He, he negotiates in 1953 the end of the war where the nation will be split the 38th parallel. And Korea to this day still sits split at the 38th parallel. Um, te- there's always tensions arising. Uh, South Korea continues to be one of our allies. But, you know, uh, in recent years, the Trump administration has been involved in with uh, dealings in Korea, so it's always in the news still. But the Korean War... Korea ends just like it starts. The United States contains the spread of communism and stops the North Koreans from taking over the South and uniting the country under communism. Um, pretty pretty important, you know, uh, domino to fall in this war because, you know, Harry Truman keeps the lid on yet again from a World War III happening. Now, I'm going to look at some ways the United States and the Soviet Union competed throughout the 50s. Eisenhower believes in containment. He will continue Truman's policies. 
Um, he may be even a little more aggressive than Truman. Now, I want to talk about an arms race. What an arms race is. An arms race are when, is when two countries, um, so you can build more guns, more bombs, and more military stuff than the other country. And the 1950s is known for that. Uh, as soon as the Soviets get the secrets for the atomic bomb and the hydrogen bomb, both sides are just building up more and more guns and uh, nuclear weapons and kind of ramping up fear in both countries. So, you know, they're creating things now that make the atomic bomb used in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, they make it look like nothing. They're building bombs, you know, 10 times that size and that uh, of power, you know. And so Eisenhower is going to put containment to the test here in 1954. Uh, a guy by the name of Arbenz uh, wins an election in Guatemala. And he kind of has some socialist communist leanings as the United States sees. And I'm not saying I agree with that perception, but... You know, he, he'll do some things in this country uh, that tick off some American companies um, when the government's kind of taking control a little bit more in the economy, you know, doing things that socialist or communist countries do. And the Eisenhower administration kind of doesn't like that. And so they'll actually launch a military coup using CIA operatives in Guatemala to get rid of Jacobo Arbenz and, and get him out of power. So, you know, I want you to keep this in mind. You kind of have in the 50s, you have Korea, the United States goes to fight to contain the spread of communism. You have in 54 in Guatemala, the CIA overthrowing a communist socialist leader. The United States is starting to say, hmm, maybe we can do these things down the road. And if we keep doing them well, we'll keep having good results containing communism. Some other ways that the U.S. competed. Uh, the space race. In the 50s, the, the Soviet Union launches the first ever space satellites known as Sputnik. And the thing's the size of a basketball. And it was, uh, wrote, you know, orbited the Earth. But Americans were petrified of this. It was a big win for the Soviets and looking good in the world stage. And we got something in the space. And the Soviets were winning the space race earlier on. Eventually, in the late 60s, um, the United States will ramp up its space program uh, even more and more. The promise of JFK, later on John F. Kennedy, and put a man on the moon. But that space race is always going on. Um, but like nuclear weapons, people thought Sputnik was going to rain missiles down on Americans. And you know it just ramped up more of that fear in the United States. And finally, one of the biggest moments of tension, and it gave uh, a rock band its, its great name, the U-2 spy plane incident. Um, at this point, Joseph Stalin has died. And, um, you know, he, he was seen as a very, very ruthless leader, obviously. Probably top five most ruthless leaders in all of world history. And his uh, the person to go over for him was Nikita Khrushchev. Nikita Khrushchev was not quite as hardline as Stalin, but he was a tough guy. Now, Eisenhower and Khrushchev were supposed to meet in the in the 50s to kind of continue to cool tensions, relax the Cold War, you know, things that everybody really wants. Um, but something happens when a U-2 spy plane is shot down over Soviet territory. Now, these U-2 spy planes are supposed to be stealthy, um, not be able to picked up, uh, be picked up by, you know, any kind of uh, detecting device that the Soviets have. Nevertheless, the plane is shot down, and the pilot is captured. And uh, the U.S. government will deny that, you know, that they have the pilot officially on the world stage, but it's pretty obvious they do have the pilot. And the, um, the talks will never happen between Khrushchev and Eisenhower. So the 50s between, like, Sputnik, the arms race, um, the Guatemalan incident, and the U-2 spy plane are all pretty pretty big events to really ramp up the, uh, the tension between the two nations. And I want to go back to Berlin now. Now, if you recall, Berlin is in the eastern section of Germany, the section controlled by the Soviet Union. But it has half of that city is uh, Western, Allied, NATO, the United States, France, and Britain. 
So they're surrounded by people who do not like them. And, and the, the East Germans and the East Berliners are having some problems, and the Soviets really indirectly, if I say East, you know, East Germany, East Berlin, these are governments controlled by the Soviet Union. They're having problems with their people trying to get to uh, West Berlin. And as a response to this, they build a massive wall around West Berlin that will become known as the Berlin Wall. You're probably familiar with this. In 1961, it will be finished. And it becomes this big symbol of communist oppression that eventually when the Berlin Wall falls, uh, kind of one of the big events to signal the end of the Cold War. So it's important to know that the function of the Berlin Wall is to separate West Berlin from East Berlin. And, And one of the big challenges was that it... To the East Berliners, it always seemed like the West was doing better. It had, um, you know, better and a better economy, uh, you know, more successful businesses. It's just a happier place to be. It also divided families um, among the city of Berlin, friends, you know, that it, you really couldn't move between the two sectors. If you tried to jump the wall, you'd be arrested, perhaps killed. So it really stood as a symbol of communist oppression. So that's why it's important to understand the Berlin Wall, its function and its purpose and role in all of this. So... Berlin still the focal point of the the Cold War, especially in Eastern Europe and East Germany. Now, the next topic I want to talk about, and is probably my favorite of the Cold War, uh, because some of my own personal research and a lesson we teach on this, I teach a great lesson on this one where the students have tried to avoid nuclear war, uh, deals with the island of Cuba and the Cuban Missile Crisis. So this is one of my favorites, but we got to back up before I get there. In 1960, after Eisenhower's second term is up, um, John F. Kennedy, a Democrat, will run against a Republican and Eisenhower's vice president, Richard Nixon. Uh, Kennedy will win. It was a very close election. Um, Nixon will eventually be president later. Two very strong candidates. And this is going to be a, a, a definitely interesting three years for President JFK. Now, he will be assassinated, unfortunately, in 1963 and will not get to finish his first term. But in my opinion, like Truman, uh, Kennedy makes some decisions in his presidency that were, that were key to the survival of the world and, and you know the successes of the Cold War for the United States. Now, there was a plan early on in the uh, I, early on in the Kennedy days and late in the Eisenhower administration. So this plan went from Eisenhower to Kennedy to try to take care of the island of Cuba. Now, the United States and Cuba have always had an interesting relationship. Obviously, it sits only you know a few dozens of miles off the coast of Florida. And Cuba, you know, in the Spanish-American War, very significant. Uh, we wrote into their constitution the Teller and Platt Amendments. And, you know, so we've had a tight relationship with them, kind of a paternalistic, I would argue, uh, with, with kind of overlooking them. And some people in Cuba did not like that. One of these guys was Fidel Castro. Fidel Castro uh, launched the revolution in Cuba, overthrows the government. And, um, you know, early on, it's not sure. You know, he visits New York. Uh, during the Eisenhower days, and it's not really sure what kind of guy he's going to be seen as. He's kind of this celebrity, this revolutionary. Some of his words and, and rhetoric certainly mirror communist or socialist uh, you know, ideologies, but it's not really sure which way Cuba's going to go, and, and the United States is kind of, you know, is always interested in Cuba, sort of taking a peek at it. Um, Eisenhower pegs him pretty quickly as a socialist and a communist and creates a plan just like the one in Guatemala for Jacobo Arbenz, to oust Castro, uh, using the CIA to train Cubans to do it, so no U.S. military is officially involved. And um, this plan will be known as the Bay of Pigs, which is where the invasion is supposed to take place in Cuba. Now, the plan goes from Eisenhower to Kennedy's desk. Um, Kennedy feels kind of pressured into it by the military folks. Uh, they change some of the plans. Kennedy doesn't want U.S. official air support. And as a result of the lack of that air support and some other things, uh, the invasion is a complete failure. The Bay of Pigs is a total 100% 
flop. And it makes the United States look really bad. So I would argue kind of like how the Berlin airlift made Stalin and the Soviets look kind of bad when, you know, Truman starts dropping supplies in and the city's blockaded. This one is a big, big loss, big L for the United States in the Cold War. Um, and it only emboldens Castro's leadership as people love him more because he repels this invasion of Cuban exiles who didn't like Castro. But Kennedy fortunately gets his second chance. Um, during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Now, Kennedy comes in, you know, when he's elected, he's seen as young. He's, he's the youngest president to be elected. I believe he was 43 years old. I could be wrong on that. Um, and he's seen as this fresh guy, this young guy, this energetic guy. The whole cabinet is, the whole government is. And um, so what Kennedy will do is really show some some intelligence here during the Cuban Missile Crisis. So what happens to the Cuban Missile Crisis? Well, Fidel Castro kind of goes looking to the Soviets um, for help. You know, he feels he feels as though, look, the United States is, wants me out. They're going to uh, keep trying to get me out, and they will try to do that. And he asks uh, Nikita Khrushchev, the Soviet Union, for help and supplies. Now, Khrushchev has an idea to put nuclear missiles within Cuba. They will act as a deterrent or something to prevent the United States from invading. Because if the United States invades or tries to get rid of Castro, guess what? They have nuclear weapons. It's this thing called mutually assured destruction. The reason that no, you know, people will argue after the Cold War, the reason no nuclear weapons were ever launched between the United States and the Soviets or any of their allies is because if the U.S. launches a missile at the Soviets, the Soviets launch a missile at the U.S. So you don't invade places, you don't take places over if it means you get a nuclear weapon shot at you. So the idea was that if Castro had nuclear weapons, the U.S. would invade because he could launch one of those weapons into the United States and kill Americans. So it's a deterrent. That's what we call it. So I want to also point out, I'm reading um, 13 Days by uh, Robert F. Kennedy, the brother of JFK, who was involved in these negotiations. And he kind of points out in his work, or at least the author in the foreword does, that um, Castro wasn't keen on getting nuclear weapons, but Khrushchev insisted. So the Soviets begin to sneak those missiles in into Cuba and work on them. Fortunately for the U.S., a U-2 spy plane picks up photographs of the construction of these missiles, and the United States finds out. So this is really where the tension begins, and the Kennedy administration kind of goes, oh, no. So they form a council called XCOM, which is a bunch of, uh, the, you know, the president, his cabinet, uh, experts in this, in this subject, mil- some military leaders, and they begin to propose plans on what to do with Cuba. The initial reaction is, we got to invade Cuba. We got to get in there before these missiles become operational, because if the missiles become operational... We can't go in because those they, they could launch one at the United States. So that's the concern in the Cuban Missile Crisis. You know, what do we do? So the military is really pushing Kennedy to take military action. Kennedy will be smart here. He won't let these military leaders pressure him in like Truman did with MacArthur. He'll be like, no, I'm the head of the, the military. The president is in charge of the armed forces. You know, and, and I want to point out, Kennedy served himself. He was in the Navy during World War II. So, you know, he's no slouch himself. So what he says to the military leaders is, look, prepare for the worst, but I'm going to try to handle this through diplomacy. And so what happens is um, the, this, he, he kind of lets the Soviets know that he knows the missiles are there by placing a blockade around the island of Cuba and turning back any ships, any Soviet ships with any more supplies. And apparently when um, Nikita Khrushchev found out that Kennedy knew and the Americans knew about the missiles, he was very nervous because he knows what this means. Now we're locked in a battle of international wits here and nobody wants to come out of this looking weak, but nobody wants to come out of this looking aggressive and launch World War III either. So Kennedy blockades the islands. 
uh, the island, excuse me, and no more new supplies come in. But it doesn't do anything about the missiles that are already there. So here becomes the stressful part. And by this point, Americans know what's going on. Kennedy has a news briefing. Uh, much of the international community, at least in the, the NATO community in the West and the Organization of American States, so a lot of people in the Western Hemisphere, uh, agree with the United States. They see the blockade as, hey, you know, that's good. You didn't go in and blow anything up or kill anybody. <laughs> you just blockaded the island. So that's that's a good decision so far, Mr. Kennedy. So kind of wins some points for the United States early on and puts them in a position of strength to negotiate. Now, the big concern also is if they move, no, we still got to get the, the missiles already there out and figure that out. At least that's what Kennedy wants to do and many of the Americans. The fear is, though, if they ever move against Cuba militarily, that what you have here now is that the Soviets who move against West Berlin and uh, possibly West Germany. And so you're just ramp, uh, ramping up to World War III there, which nobody wants. The United States and President Kennedy specifically receives a letter from Nikita Khrushchev, though, kind of a few days into this, after uh, once Khrushchev has found out that, okay, I can't believe I'm butchering Khrushchev, his name there, I keep using different ones, but it's going to keep happening. Um, he gets a letter from Nikita Khrushchev that says, hey, you know, if you promise not to invade or touch Cuba or do anything to Castro, we'll take the missiles out right now. Um, this looks like a great deal, deal to Kennedy. And surprisingly, like, they're sending these letters back and forth, like, officially between the embassies, real, like, you know, official way. There's no hotline <laughs> during this whole thing um, from Moscow to D.C. After this is over, both nations agree, yeah, it's probably a good idea if we could just talk directly. Um, so this letter from Khrushchev says, you know, hey, we'll, we'll take the missiles out, just promise not to invade Cuba and get rid of Castro, and we're good. Before Kennedy and the U.S. can respond, uh, another letter arrives from Khrushchev that is definitely showing some pressure from Khrushchev's uh, military leaders within his country. People are pressuring him, the top generals, just like Kennedy, to, you know, got to act tough, you can't be seen as weak here. And this letter says, um, not only can you not promise to invade Cuba and dispose of Castro, you also have to remove uh, your Jupiter nuclear missiles from Turkey. So before the, the Kennedy administration can agree to the previous letter, they have this one in their hands now. Many people think Khrushchev didn't even write this letter. So now Kennedy's in a real, uh, real tough spot. So the reason is some people in Kennedy's cabinet and his ex-com advisor say, yeah, just take the missiles out of Turkey. You can't do that. Many people advise him because A, it'll make you look weak. And B, it kind of leaves your allies out to dry. Those missiles are a deterrent for Turkey, which is right near the Soviet Union. And it'll just make the United States look weak, not great around the world stage. Like, they'll leave any ally out to dry if it benefits them no matter what. So they can't really publicly take those missiles out of Turkey. So now we're in the back to this tough spot again. But here's the thing. Kennedy and the military leaders in XCOM all knew that those missiles were scheduled to be withdrawn from Turkey at a much later date and eventually replaced with better missiles later on. Now, this is where it gets interesting because Kennedy basically says, um, and he'll have his brother, Robert F. Kennedy, go to the Soviet ambassador, um, de Brennan, and negotiate this. And what the U.S. proposes is that, look, we will promise not to dispose of Castro. However, here's what we will do. The missiles were scheduled to be removed from Turkey within six months. We'll remove those missiles. No problem. It's what you want. But you cannot tell the world that that's why we did it. And if you do, we will deny it. And we will, um, you know, take action as a result of that. And what DeBrennan, the ambassador, can do is tell Khrushchev this. And Khrushchev can tell his generals, hey, look, the United States is taking the missile out of Turkey. We just can't tell the world. We still got a big win here. 
Okay, so Khrushchev's almost like a bone he can throw his military leaders. Um, but to the rest of the world who doesn't know about the Jupiter missiles in Turkey, this just looks like the United States says, "Yep, we won't invade, uh, you know, Cuba and dispose of Castro, and you know the missiles are gone." And basically what you have here now is the end of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, Khrushchev and the Soviets agree to that deal, and the missiles are withdrawn from Cuba. But this was still a very scary moment. I would argue the scariest moment of the Cold War, um, even more than the Berlin Airlift, because you were so close to nuclear war. Uh, So the Soviets agree to take the missiles out, and the U.S. will not promise not to dispose of Castro in Cuba, and will remove the Jupiter missiles um, within six months, but not to the public knowledge of the world. And Kennedy manages to negotiate this uh, in a very clever way. So that's the end of Cold War Episode 2. Uh, we've covered a lot of material. We hope you enjoyed. Uh, yeah, definitely, guys, use this as something to to supplement the notes or to review for the Reads exam. And uh, if you have questions, you know, you can always tweet us at, at History Holly. And we hope you enjoyed this episode. Thanks for listening.